0: I'm back from Rwanda with Mark, um, and I do. Want, I want to say thanks with Mark. Uh, our trip back, I didn't go as planned. It was basically forty hours from Kigali International Airport to O'Hare, and we got in uh, Thursday night around midnight. Um, and um, Mark and I are both jet lagging. I woke up at two this morning, so you get a really fresh version of me. And Mark emailed me at three this morning, so that's. That's where we're at. Little grace this morning, but God is good. Um, I wanted to start just to give you a little bit. I know a lot of you want to hear a little bit about our trip, and I'll sprinkle stories throughout. But I'll start with some pictures and stuff. Uh, I thought it was funny. I knew we were in for an adventure. We showed up at O'Hare. Actually, there was no line to check our luggage and security and everything. But we hand, you know, Mark and I are traveling together, and we hand the lady our passports, and she hands them back, and we aren't paying attention to who she handed the passport back to. So I walk up to security first and I hand him Mark's passport. And he's like, You're not getting through here with that. And I was like, It's going to be a great trip. We're off to a great start. I didn't experience this, but I told you in the realm of a Rwandan hospitality, Doug has been there several times. And the last couple days we were out east. In Rwanda, in a in a banana tree forest. I mean, it's so cool. I love bananas, <laughs> banana tree forest. And there were lakes out there. And Doug was telling us, you know, like, oh, that's the lake we baptized people. It's really close to the church. And he's like, I got to tell you what happened. Now we joked with Aphrodite and got more background on this. But Doug's like, this is how it happened as I experienced it. We go down to the lake, and there's conversations about crocodiles. <laughs> So I'm asking Aphrodis if we need to be worried about crocodiles, and Aphrodite smiles and says, you don't need to worry. And Doug's like, are you sure? You don't need to worry. So they go down to the lake, and there's a whole crowd, right? They're baptizing people. And Aphrodis points to someone and says, you head out there. And so this guy walks out into the lake about this deep and stands there, and Aphrodite says, see, no crocodile. We can baptize now. <laughs> That's Rwandan hospitality, folks. Um, now, we were asking, Aphrodite, do you really just randomly pick someone, and they're just like this, if there's a croc, come get me. He's like, no, we do that for you Westerners. He said, <laughs> he said well, I talked to the locals, we were pretty sure there's no crocodile there, but we did it to help you. But just, I mean, it just, it just gives you a, both a cultural experience, but also, I mean, they're just so welcoming. So. Anyway, yeah, more stories, and Mark and I are still processing, and who knows, maybe you'll get a chance to go, um, but be praying for them, and, uh, and again, thank you for allowing that to happen. We're going to continue working our way through Hebrews 10, um, and we're just going to, I think it's all right, but it wasn't my normal prep week, so give me grace if I'm rambling or falling asleep up here. No, I won't fall asleep, but uh, we're going to go through Hebrews. We're going to finish chapter 10. And uh, this section breaks out into three sections, so the first part is an exhortation, and we'll talk a little bit about what the author is calling the people to. And then, if you were with us a few weeks back when we did chapter 6, we get the second and maybe the strongest language of warning, Um, but in the same way that we saw in chapter 6, it's a real warning that the author is giving to motivate towards perseverance But the author isn't worried about the church. And so the last part of chapter 10, the last few verses, is the author just stating, he's mitigating the warning a little bit and stating, but that's not, we are those who persevere. So I just want you to know that as we we journey through it, because it's in strong language. The first two verses here, 19 and 20. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Because of the blood of Jesus. That's what we've been talking about. He's kind of summarizing for weeks here. By his death, and I love this phrasing, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. So Jesus has opened a new way into the presence of God. One of the ways that I was thinking of thinking about this, imagine, I mean, you could just imagine going to, I don't know, pick a skyscraper in downtown Chicago. Think of the biggest companies you can think of. Think of trying to get a word with a CEO or a boss of some massive company. In your mind, you could imagine all the places you got to walk just to get to the office, and then you'd come, and then you'd meet with the secretary, and you would find out, can I even get in to talk to the boss? What the author of Hebrews is saying That's not how it works with God. There's no secretary sitting outside the throne room deciding whether or not God has time to meet with you. You don't approach the presence of God wondering, what kind of mood is he in today? Do I want to talk to him? No, we know the heart of God through the work of Jesus, through the person of Jesus. And you and I are welcomed because of what Jesus has done. We are welcomed right into the presence of God. Right into the throne room. With, with joy and glee, with, with, with absolute assurance, we just walk right in. <laughs> now, I know for some of you that's hard, that's hard to believe and understand, but it is absolutely true. The author of Hebrews just says, says it again and again, draw boldly into the presence of God before the throne. It's an invitation. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest, that's what we were talking about for several weeks, who rules over God's house, He says it again, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, and I love this phrase, fully trusting him. I mean, if you're paying attention as we keep reading through these verses, you're going to hear this language of trust and faith, trust and faith. And one author, I, I just liked how he summarized this. He said, faith isn't something you just drum up by your own efforts. It's what comes when you are looking hard at the object of faith. And in this context, the object of faith is Jesus, or you could say God seen in the light of and in the face of Jesus. This whole letter to the Hebrews has been about Jesus and about who we are as a result of who he is and what he's done. And so our faith, fully trusting in God, comes when we look at Jesus. When we focus on Jesus, when we remind ourselves of the story of Jesus, crucified and resurrected and, as Hebrews has said again and again, seated at the right hand of the Father. Then verse uh, continues on, for our guilty consciences, and I'm going to come back at the very end to help us think through again this idea of conscience that we've talked a little bit about in this letter. Our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean Again, we've talked about that in a Jewish worldview, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. I think that's a reference to baptism. He says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. I think the author of Hebrews is very aware. Remember, the church he's writing to is facing persecution because of their faith. And they are wondering, right? There's there's some wondering. There's nowhere else to go. Remember the words of Peter. Lord, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The author of Hebrews knows that the circumstance that they're facing is hard, but he calls them to a faith that is unwavering. Don't waver in the midst of this. Why? He says, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Again, it's all the object of your faith. Who are you putting your faith in? Jesus. Look at, the, look at the, the, the lengths he will go to rescue you on the cross. You can trust him. You can trust in his goodness and in his timing. Verse 24, which I think, actually, I'm hoping, I think it's, verse 24 is almost a verse that describes the kind of culture that I believe the Holy Spirit is cultivating here at Crossview. Let us, and maybe there's a, you know, sometimes I say a verse worth memorizing. Memorize this verse. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Wow, would we be an amazing church if that was just the norm. We come to church, we come on Sunday, we come to our small group, we come when we gather at Network of Nations, and and we're trying to think of ways to motivate one another to love and good works, right? In fact, we talk a lot about that in our discipleship pathway, Formed, and I wanted to say one thing here about Formed. I've been promising that I'm going to do it on Wednesday nights in the spring, but I haven't given you a start date yet, uh, which most of you know it's because I have knee surgery this Thursday. And as I was talking to the doctor, um, we don't exactly know how bad my meniscus is. And so when they get in there, uh, it's either going to be two weeks on crutches, four weeks on crutches, or six weeks on crutches. So I'm kind of hanging out one more week before I give you a firm date. We'll have time to get it done before summer breaks loose. But if you're interested in Formed, if you want to join us, if you want to learn more about what it means to be a church that tries to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, consider joining us at Formed on Wednesday nights when I'm ready. <laughs> when I'm ready. And then verse 25, a pretty famous verse. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And you'll see as we're, as we're rounding out chapter 10, this is all driving towards the warning, the exhortation, the occur- it's all driving towards perseverance and endurance in the midst of difficult times. And I, just even reading that verse and thinking about it, I, I, I wanted to just say here, my experience as someone who's been in vocational ministry for 20 years is that meeting together is essential for endurance. As soon as you start to get lax on being present with your church family on a regular basis, I've just seen too many times that's the first step towards drifting away. And so I just say, I mean, this isn't some kind of heavy-handed pastor trick. This is just friendly, sincere, like loving one another. If you're serious about Jesus, you've got to continue to make meeting together a priority. (laughs) That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And then we get to verse 26 through 31. This is this intense, harsh warning. I said this when we did chapter 6. I'll say it again. There's a variety of ways that people understand some of what's happening here. But no one really questions. This is written as a warning to people who reject Jesus. This isn't just your average, like, Monday morning wake up. And say, this, is, this is rejecting what Jesus did on the cross. This is renouncing. And, I, and I'll show you he's, He's being almost playful in how he's, the language he'll use to talk about what's happening. He's just, when he's saying, you're flipping everything upside down and you can't do it. So we'll get into this. It's a warning. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. In other words, if if you reject what Jesus did on the cross for your salvation and your forgiveness, there's no other sacrifice. There is no other means of salvation. It's Jesus and only Jesus. That's what he's saying. Verse 27, there is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. That's really powerful language. The language of fire runs through the scriptures. And I I almost said more today, but for the sake of time, I'm gonna hold that. The last verse in chapter 12 will come back to this idea of God as a consuming fire. So we'll hold off on that fire language until we get there. But hanging with the warning: for anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses, the old covenant, was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But as we talked about, the new covenant is truer, is deeper, is more real than the old covenant. Verse 29, so just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have, and here he goes, three kind of ways of flipping things, trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. So what's he doing with these three images? I think it's actually pretty, pretty creative. If you've been tracking with us from the beginning of the letter, the whole letter is essentially an an exposition of Psalm 110. I mean, he's using other Old Testament passages, but Psalm 110 has been driving the whole letter. And Psalm 110 tells us that the Father is going to make his enemies a footstool under the Son's feet, right? That the Messiah is going to, in a sense, trample on the enemies of God evil in the world and so he's flipping it he's saying he's saying if you are trampling on the son of god if you are rejecting what jesus has done if you are rejecting his lordship you have flipped everything upside down that god is doing you've rejected his plan of salvation the second thing he says and if you've been tracking with us Again, and I understand that in our modern world, it, it sounds weird to say this, but if you enter into the Jewish world, you understand what's going on. The blood is what cleanses and purifies. And he's saying, well, if you treat, if you treat what, what, what's holy, what cleanses, what purifies as unholy, as dirty, then there's no hope for you. It's like looking at a bar of soap and thinking, I can't use that. It's going to make me dirty. Well, then what hope do you ever have for being clean? You've, you've, you've flipped this upside down. You've got it all wrong. And then he talks about uh, rejecting the Holy Spirit, insulting, disdaining, outraging the Holy Spirit, the very one by whom the grace of God is administered to believers. Rejecting the Spirit is to reject the grace that God offers, and then if that's our hope for salvation, if that's our grace, then you are, in essence, bringing judgment upon yourself. And he's doing this in creative ways. It's a deep arrogance saying, I know better than God knows, and I can take care of myself. (laughs) And it's dangerous, and there's an intense warning, and an closes out with these verses. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said the Lord will judge his own people. And he ends with this pretty powerful verse, verse 31. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <laughs> a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One author said this, the, loving, the living God to whom everyone will render account is neither to be trifled with nor presumed upon. And I know sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our mind around the love of God and the salvation and the rescue and the judgment, and how does this all come together? And I think it's a journey to wrestle with that, to sit with that. Sometimes we're taught unhelpful things along that journey. But I was thinking, one of the people who I think gets this and does it in a very creative way of communicating is C.S. Lewis. I talk a lot about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. It's never too late to read the Chronicles of Narnia, folks. And he does such a good job with this character of Aslan, who really represents Jesus in the story, though Lewis would never say that. But he says, as as he talks about Aslan, this this lion who is is good, and goodness just pours out from him, but he says Aslan is not tame, he's not a a tame lion. And as you read through the story, when the lion speaks, no one in the story ever questions who is in charge. Even the enemies of Aslan, they, when the lion speaks, everyone knows nothing more needs to be said. He is the one in control. And, and as people encounter this lion, they come with all their arrogance, and they run into the lion, and they, they bump into a greater reality than themselves. And even to, to think of controlling this lion is just preposterous. It's preposterous. And it's a gateway into understanding just to who... Who this God is, one of mercy, yes, one of judgment, yes, he's going to judge evil. And the warning, again, is not to drive people into despair, right? That's not the point. But the warning is to awaken us, to persevere, to understand the seriousness of the question before the people as they face persecution in the name of Jesus, But as I said, he gives the warning with pretty strong language and then he mitigates it a bit and says, but I'm not worried about you. So look at how he finishes off the chapter. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. I mean, your own story is an example of remaining faithful in the midst of suffering, he says. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and you were beaten. And I think this is really profound. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. I just think on my own discipleship journey as I'm learning to take up my own cross and follow Jesus. One of the things that I'm learning is to love as Jesus loves means that I voluntarily enter into other people's pain and suffering. I don't close them off or avoid them or ignore them so that I don't get, no, I choose to go down into the valley with others because we need each other, (laughs) because that's what Jesus modeled. He says, you've done that, church. Verse 34, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. Even that, I mean, I read that and I thought about that, and I thought, for, for maybe even for myself, and I'm probably not alone. But I read that and I think, wait a minute, everything that I own could be taken from me, and I would accept it as joy. If anything, that should within us elicit a curiosity. Jesus, I don't know what that life is like. I live in a consumeristic, materialistic Babylonian culture where I find my value in what I own, and having more of it than my neighbor. You're telling me I could live through circumstances where all my stuff is taken from me, and I would know joy? Wow, as you present that to me, I actually feel sometimes I'm in bondage to my stuff, and I'm tired of the rat race of keeping up with the Joneses. Jesus, show me this life, right? It's something that it curious. Jesus, teach me. I don't know what that's like. I don't know how to have that kind of joy. Show it to me. I'll tell you, I saw some of that joy in Rwanda. (laughs) I mean, they live in a very different world, very different perspective. I think there's things that, that they could learn from us, and there's a whole lot of things that we could learn from them. Just joy, joy. He says, you knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever, not only in Rwanda, but maybe even more so in the Congo. So Mark mentioned a couple of weeks before we left, he asked you to pray. We wanted to go into the Congo, but there was rebel activity. There were these pretty nasty rebels in the Congo. And they're 20 miles outside of the city of Goma, which is right on the border of Rwanda, which is where we were going in. For They're not our partners. Uh, we, we partner with Aphrodite, but they're other partners with Harvesters. And we wanted to go in, um, but it was a little precarious, actually. The rebels were active again, and there was a lot of conversation, should we or shouldn't we? In fact, five days after we left, there was a lot of violent activity where we were um, with a militia raised up to fight the rebels, right? There's just all kinds of violence in the Congo. Uh, and so our, our leader even said, look, if our trip was a week earlier or a week later, we would have never gone into the Congo. But we went in, and I will tell you, I was praying a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a big deal when you cross that border. The Congo and R- Rwanda are very different. I will tell you this, though. I mean, I, I went on the trip... Ultimately, because I felt like God was saying, this will be good for your faith journey, Jeff. This will put you, you'll have to trust me in ways you haven't in a while. It'll be good for you. Congo was maybe the prime example of trusting God. But I'll tell you, I woke up with a sense of peace. And I would say a God-given courage. And I am so glad we went. I mean, these people are... The, the, what they're doing is giving their life to the church and to all these orphans. There's so many orphans because of the violence in the Congo. There's so many parents that have been killed. I mean, I could give you a few stories. Some of the pastors there shared what they've seen with, these, with the violence and the displaced people and all these things. But I'll show you um, the bishop, Athanasis. Um, I told him he was my bishop. I don't have a bishop. I said, you're my bishop. Just a great man. Um, But you see the work they're doing, and their circumstances are harder than than maybe I've seen. But their joy, their faith, their hope is so deep and so rich, and that's what comes from following a crucified Messiah. Again, one of the lies that we believe in modern-day Babylon is that we need comfort to be happy, and that God is smiling on me when everything is going right. You go to the Congo, and you know that's not true. Everything is not going right in the Congo, but God is smiling on them and they know it. It's beautiful. We have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ. They know something of what is being spoken of in these these verses. And then it ends here, right? So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. And it's all driving towards this patient endurance is what you need. Not simply putting up with things, but courageously bearing hardships, right? It's what you need. Patience endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will and then you will receive all that he has promised. Verses 37 and 38, he's kind of doing a mishmash of a few different Old Testament passages. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. And that's meant to be good news to us believers. And my righteous ones will live by faith, but I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. Again, Peter, Lord, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's no other sacrifice for our sins other than Jesus on the cross. And so he ends the chapter with these words, but we are not like those who turn away, right? Unbelievable assurance. We are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones who, whose souls will be saved. That's who we are, church. So hang in there. Hold fast. Stay strong, unwavering in your faith. That's the call of Hebrews. Let me just say um, just a few more things, just maybe some bigger idea kind of things that we can flesh out more as we journey ahead. The first thing I want to say is he's talking about this coming one is that the day drawing near is the day of the Lord. It's a day in which you and I meet reality. I think we'll talk more about this when we talk about God as a consuming fire, but on the day of the Lord, we will meet our true self. Standing before Christ himself, we will finally see all things as they really are, and we will finally know who we're called to be. And part of what's being communicated is that day is going to be joyous and fearful. (laughs) I mean, somehow you've just got to hold the tension. I mean, it's fearful because there is deep evil in this world that is against God's design of goodness, and it will be eradicated on that day. Amen? I mean, I will talk more about this because it's piqued my curiosity, but our very first morning in Rwanda, we visited the genocide memorial. Some of you have been to a Holocaust memorial. It's very similar, different story, but the genocide happened in 1994, 29 years ago. I was in high school, it's in our lifetime. And I I mean, walking through the memorial was striking. And I I learned, I was just, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon is what I read, evil, evil. May that never happen again in the history of humanity, right? Horrible stuff. We want want that eradicated. It's evil. I mean, you can read about it. I will will probably use it as as an example in a future sermon. But what what we're seeing is that the coming one, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's bringing life. Jesus has created a new and living way. And as John will say, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out the idea that the judgment of God is something, if you're in Christ, perfect love casts out the idea that the judgment of God is something you should dread. So we look forward to the coming of Christ. When you love God as you have been loved, the last thing you would fear is that God would be against you. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Now your Romans 8 echo through Hebrews, actually. (laughs) I think the author knew Paul. But if God is for us, then who could be against us? It should be as unthinkable for you and I to fear God as it would have been for Jesus, to fear the Father. You read through the Gospels, Jesus perfectly submits to the will of the Father. He does the heart of the Father because he knows no matter what Babylon throws at him, the Father will vindicate him. Even if death is thrown at Jesus, the Father will resurrect him, right? Jesus fully trusts the Father. There's no fear there. And you and I are invited into that throne room, into the presence of the Father. There's no fear anymore. Another way of talking about this is that Hebrews is concerned with conscience, right? God purifies our conscience. We could say that God gives us our hearts back. God restores our innocence. And I don't mean childishness. What I mean is this boldness that comes with knowing that there's nothing between us. Right? If you know the story of the Bible, it begins with Adam and Eve joyfully walking with God in the garden, and then eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rebelling, sinning, and then they hide from God in shame. God says, where are you? Why are you hiding? And, and there's just this thing, until Jesus comes, there's just this, man, there's something off in the relationship. Have you experienced that with people you love? You have. You've gone through seasons where you're just something off. It's it's not right. It's awkward. Jesus comes and removes it, and you're good again. You and I are good with the Father. We just walk right into his presence. No fear, no dread, just joy because he delights us. Look at the lengths to which he's gone for us. (laughs) We're invited in. That's who our God is. He purifies our conscience. He removes the... The, the toxicity in our relationship and helps us to rest with him. And he removes the fear of death. Uh, we've talked a lot about death and life and how Christ, death tries to swallow Christ and he just overwhelms it with life, right? And part of what happened is God is purifying our conscience as he's cleansing us from the fear of death. And I don't know if you, I mean, there's a bunch of movies out there where And I I remember them in the 80s and 90s. Maybe the movie I was thinking of was the movie Gladiator the most. But it's common in movies where you have someone who loses everything, right? And because they lose everything, they no longer fear death, but they then become a dangerous, violent person is what happens in the movies. And there's this sense that once you have nothing to lose, you're capable of doing anything, right? That's kind of how the movie unfolds. But it's kind of a perverse reversal of what happens in Jesus. You and I no longer fear death because of what God has done. He's filled death with life. And because of that, we are now capable of doing anything, (laughs) but anything in the name of love and mercy. No mercy is unthinkable for us because we have nothing to be afraid of. Once you realize that there's nothing to fear in death, then there's nothing too good to think or attempt. And I like to constantly encourage you, if you haven't, to read the Gospels to get to know Jesus, because you'll see this life just unfold. As I always, when I read through the Gospels, I picture Jesus walking through a wilderness, and everywhere he steps, flowers blossom. Right? It's just, life is just bursting forth. There's no fear of death because there's so much life. And you see all the good that Jesus does and then it starts to inspire you and your imagination gets renewed and sanctified and you think, maybe I can do good like Jesus. And then you start stirring one another on. Maybe you, I want to motivate you to love like Jesus and to do good works like Jesus because that's what it means to be truly human. Because that's, what, that's this new and living way, life-giving way that's been opened up for us. We don't have to be afraid of. Because we have a God who has made death, has vanquished death from the story, right? And he makes life possible. Another way, one person said it this way. God, all, sometimes the fear of death is just the fear of the unknown. But when you no longer, whatever happens, the fear of the unknown, what's in the future? But when you no longer fear death, then, then the unknown just becomes opportunities for happy surprises. I, was, I tried to take that posture in our journey through Rwanda, into the Congo, all through, and there were just so many happy surprises, right? It just, God just kept just blessing me. with I never thought that would happen, but that was amazing, right? I mean, that's what happens when you say yes to Jesus. And the last thing I'll say, and I'll use this as a way to transition into our time of communion together, enjoying the feast that Jesus provides. I was telling Mark on the way home I really do think I met, and hopefully this is good news to you since I serve as a pastor at your church, right? But I really think I met with Jesus in Rwanda. I really do. And I think he did some work and it was painful, but he carved into my soul, carved some junk out of there. And I told Mark on the way home, part of my worry is that I'll come back to my routine and I'll fill the caverns with all the stuff that was there before. And I don't want that. I mean, even maybe, maybe that's an image for you too. I have a feeling because Jesus is this kind of, he's a gentleman. He's caring and he's loving, but he wants to change and transform us. <laughs> the way you are now is not the way you have to stay forever. And I'm sure he's carving caverns in your soul too. Don't just go to what you know to refill those things. Let Jesus fill you with a new and living way. Let Him feed you with His body and His blood. Let this meal nourish your soul and change you and show you another way. It's all because of Jesus and who He is. And you can pray for me. Pray that I allow Jesus to fill the spaces that He's carved out so that I can be different, so that I can be more like Him. I pray that for all of us.